Carmen. Hey, Frida. Guess who's back? Back again. Take it easy, it's back. Tell a friend. <laughs> so, in the words of Eminem slash Slim Shady, Take It Easy is back for a second season. And yes. yes, we are so excited. And we are getting started with a radical topic. Well, well, well. <laughs> so, wow. How do we even do this again, Carmen? <laughs> yeah, I forgot. It's like we took a hiatus and now we forgot how to do this. But, okay, guys. So, this episode is about El Comandante Che Guevara. Ernesto Che Guevara as an icon. We are kicking off a season where we are going to be exploring a lot about artistry and iconography in the context of Cuba and Cuban-American life. And what is one of the most popular images symbolizing revolutionary and radical politics that you can even think of? For me, it's definitely that image of Che Guevara wearing a beret and looking off into a distance. Where are we going into this topic of El Che Guevara? So the year is 2009, and I'm at my very first college party, and I'm chilling, you know, relaxing all cool, not playing some b-ball, and some guy walks in with a Che Guevara t-shirt, and immediately it caught my eye because, number one, I'm Cuban, and number two, it's Che Guevara, and number three, it's a white guy wearing a Che Guevara t-shirt. And it wasn't very different from any of the times that I saw Che Guevara anywhere else, but suddenly some white kid walking into a party wearing a Che Guevara t-shirt had me feeling things that I had never felt before when I had seen Che Guevara's image. And I grew up seeing Che Guevara's image almost everywhere. Growing up in Miami, you're not really presented with people who are very different from your upbringing. So growing up with a bunch of Cubans, it never occurred to anybody to put Che Guevara on a t-shirt and walk around with it. Carmen and I were both raised Cuban-Americans in Miami, where the perspective of Che Guevara, I would say, is generally that this man was a very violent figure in the revolution. It's the very first time I think that I was confronted with the fact that somebody else might have a different idea of what this image stands for. So let's get into the image. The image I'm talking about, I'm sure you've seen countless amount of times. It has been said that it is the most reproduced photograph of the 20th century. And it is the image of Che Guevara looking off into the distance. He's very serious. He's got long hair, and he's wearing a beret with a single star in the middle. The image is called Guerrillero Heroico, or Heroic Warrior. Yep, wow, I had never translated that, and now as I'm saying it in English, it's even weirder. So it was taken on March 5th, 1960, in La Habana, at a memorial service for the victims of La Cubre Explosion. It was taken by a photographer named Alberto Corda. And Corda is Castro's official photographer. So he is someone who was going around pretty much documenting the various exploits of young revolutionary Fidel Castro and the crew that he ran with. Mm-hmm. And so this is 1960, just one year after the revolution, almost one year because March. But So La Cura was a European vessel that was delivering munitions right to the port of Havana, which, if you know anything, and I don't really know anything, <laughs> but if you know anything about how boats and harbors and ports work, you know that you don't unload munitions straight off of a boat onto a port because they can explode. 
which is exactly what happened. Interestingly enough, the Cuban government has presented this as an act of terrorism. Che, who was a trained medic at the time, came immediately to help the victims of the explosion and also later was in attendance of this memorial service where there were other really famous people like Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre who were also photographed in this exact same role as Che. Fun fact, at this memorial, Castro gave a eulogy for these victims and this is the very first time that we ever hear him say the phrase patria o muerte. Homeland or Death, which is really relevant right now because one of the hottest songs coming out of the Cuban diaspora is by artists Gente de Zona, Yotuel, Decimer Bueno, Michael y El Funky. These guys got together and made a song called Patria y Vida, Homeland and Life. As a matter of fact, there's a whole album by the same name. And it's a big statement on how the Cuban government has caused so much suffering to the people. But anyway, I digress. So Alberto Corda was photographing the event, not necessarily Che Guevara or necessarily the leaders or anything like that. He also had photos of Castro, of Simone, of Jean-Paul Sartre, everybody. And he took those images to the newspaper at the time of the revolution. And they didn't publish... Che Guevara's image. In fact, Che Guevara's image was not really seen by anybody except for Alberto Corda. Side note on Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre. They hung around right after the revolution happened to take in like the revolutionary spirit. And Jean-Paul Sartre, 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 Sartre. (laughs) after having some conversations with Che Guevara, he called him like the most complete man in existence. A couple years after the revolution, when they saw that Fidel Castro and the entire regime had actually imprisoned an artist that they knew, they condemned everything that (gasps) Che and Fidel Castro had done during that time, saying like, you know, the people of Cuba do not seem joyous anymore. This is more of a dictatorship. So I think we can include that letter but I think that it's interesting to see the way that Jean, Jean-Paul Sartre started to think about this man versus how he ended up thinking at least about the impact of the revolution in Cuba. So this picture, I wanted to tell you about this scene because I wanted you to know exactly what was the moment that this photo was captured in. So this isn't Che Guevara looking off into, you know, some sort of battlefield or any other situation. This is Che Guevara likely looking at Castro or likely looking at the scene of people who are mourning the loss of their loved ones. Also, the picture that we know right now is Che Guevara's image and it's isolated. But the picture, the original one, had a palm tree to the right side and a random man's face ever so slightly out of focus in profile to the left side. And this is really important because the minute you crop that picture to isolate Che Guevara's face, that is when you take that moment and you separate it from history. That's when it becomes timeless and that is when it becomes something that's transferable, something that's easy to photocopy and distribute, which is effectively how we got here to the t-shirt. The other key person in this distribution of this image is a man by the name Jim Fitzpatrick, who's an artist that met Che at a bar in Ireland and later came to Cuba and visited Alberto Corda, and he requested that he give him two copies of his photograph of Che. Jim Fitzpatrick took that image, stylized it, and altered it slightly. 
he put an F all the way to the right-hand side of the image, part of Che's shirt. If you're not looking for it, you'll never find it. Mm-mm, I didn't. Yeah, we had to <laughs> go over this for like five minutes. And so in doing this, Jim Fitzpatrick has effectively stolen that copyright. Now, this sort of raises the question of whether or not he's ever benefited or profited from it. We don't actually know. I'm willing to bet that he has. But this is really important because it was not supposed to have copyright. Under communist ideals, you do not have copyright. Artists don't exist in the same way that you and I maybe understand artists to exist, where credit is given to people when they make stuff. That just doesn't happen because images are thought to be free to belong to the people, of the people, and by the people. And more than that, the state owns everything. It wasn't until 2011 that the family of Alberto Gorda decided to start enforcing any type of copyright, which, by the way, is really tricky to do internationally because every country has a different take on copyright, what counts, what doesn't, and how to possibly combat it. But all of this to say that It is now one of the most identifiable symbols, and more than that, it's become a brand and a symbol and North Star image for this sort of young Marxist, leftist, activist person who is sort of screaming for change. A moment of silence (laughs) to appreciate the irony of the mass production of this image in a capitalist society (laughs) when when this man is either communist or Marxist or some call him Stalinist and would not have appreciated at least the marketing of his image. But I think this takes us perfectly well to the subject that we really also want to get into. When Carmen saw someone wearing this man's image on a t-shirt, she wasn't upset because it was a very capitalist thing of him to do. We grew up hearing about atrocities committed by this man. And so how could this man who committed atrocities also be so inspiring to so many people? So let's talk about El Che and his beginnings. He was a Argentinian born to a well to do family. His family was very leftist and eventually he went to school for medicine. I can't find any records of him having actually finished and he went on this very famous road trip which he uh, journaled all the way through and now there is a movie that is called The Motorcycle Diaries because he got on a motorcycle with one of his friends and rode all the way up to Venezuela and then I believe all the way eventually up to Mexico where he met Fidel Castro. And that whole road trip, the whole purpose of it, he has written was that he was in search for a cause. He was in search for something bigger than himself that he could be of service to. So he wanted to find himself. So he wanted to find himself. On a road trip. In the middle of college. We get it. We get it. (laughs) Cut to me in South Korea. (laughs) I get it. (laughs) All the way through this whole road trip in which he eventually found himself, (laughs) he met all of these people with actual struggles and actual problems. From what I've read in Bolivia, he showed up and wanted to stir up this militant militia guerrilla style revolution, but 
really, the people there were struggling workers who wanted to go about the revolution in a much different way. I'm not sure how you can call that revolutionary when you're just walking into some place, forcing your ideas onto a community, not understanding who they are and what they want for themselves. And I think this is a good time to start begging the question of, did he ever really consider that he could be an ally and what the role of an ally is versus being some kind of white savior? We might be able to discuss that from the context of the Cuban Revolution. So he gets to Mexico where he meets Fidel Castro. This is before the revolution. He meets Fidel and Raul. And there's a bunch of pictures of this meeting, actually, and of them talking. And he decides, I have found it. This is the cause that I have been searching for. And they decide to go back to Cuba and overthrow Batista. It's important to note the state of Cuba under Batista. So if we had to paint a picture, it was all of the glitzy, glamorous, romantic, beautiful, lively things that you all know of Cuba. So think Havana with the nightclubs and the casinos and all of the music and the rum and the rumba and all of that good stuff. But that only existed in the cities. Everywhere else was just this immensely poor, rural, sprawling country of people who were farming and were uneducated. These people we call guajiros. And so Che and Castro set out to level out the playing field, to bring communism to the country, and to make everyone equal, to give everyone opportunities and kick out the U.S., kick out imperialism. And in the aftermath of the revolution, many things happened. After the fight is won and the revolution happened in Cuba, which, by the way, was a guerrilla-led coup d'etat, after that happened, the real work began. And part of the real work was retribution against people who did not support the revolution and people who were also involved in the regime of Batista. El Che was named the head of La Cabaña military fortress, where several hundred executions were carried out in the months after 1959. These executions did not have any trial and were pretty much by the whim of Elche, who he felt deserved death. And so there were innocent people executed, though I will say not in any large, large numbers, but it was hundreds. And there are enough accounts of... Elche being an arrogant and just overall shitty person who killed a 14-year-old boy for trying to defend his father and another young boy that was 16 years old that Che Guevara refused to pardon. What I'll say about these executions is that Cubans and Cuban-Americans still talk about those to this day, and more so because they were part of the continuation of violence that happened even after the revolution, and it definitely set the tone. There are some people that will say, well, that's just part of war, or that's just part of the retribution after an already bloody reign by Batista. I will ask you this. Is putting LGBTQ people, dissidents, and other nonconforming folks in a forced labor internment camp part of war? And I ask you that because El Che contributed to, he had a very important role in starting the Guanajacabibes, and I hope I'm saying that right, camp, which was the first camp of this kind in Cuba for people who, according to El Che Guevara, people who have committed crimes against revolutionary morals. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> 
Well, if you want to refer back to our previous episodes, that could mean fucking anything. <laughs> if you're a social deviant or dissident, it includes homosexuals, Jehovah's Witnesses, practitioners of Afro-Cuban religions, and even non-political rebels. This actually started a practice called UMAP, which are Las Unidades Militares de Ayuda a la Producción, which was a series of camps that, according to a 1967 human rights report, over 300,000 internees were forced to work for free, sunrise to sunset, seven days a week, spoiled food, unhealthy water, unclean plates, no showers, and inmates are given the same treatment as political prisoners. I think that this is one of the most condemning parts of the legacy of El Che. To have such strict black and white revolutionary morals such that people are able to be imprisoned and forced into labor. And Carmen forced labor was a pretty big part of what Che Guevara stood for. Che thought of labor as the currency of the individual. He thought of it as the only trade that should exist between sectors as opposed to money. This sounds like a terrible nightmare because it forces you to live to work. On that note, he was tapped to be the president of the National Bank, the Minister of Industries, and he was also in charge of agrarian reform. Being in charge of the National Bank, he kicked out the IMF, kicked out all of the foreign banks, and tried to do away with banknotes. Much of his belief was to separate labor from money, and so because of that, in 1964, he introduced 24 salary wages and a 15% bonus for overcompletion. And within this system, he meant to include material incentives, which sounds a lot to me like dangling a bike in front of somebody and then telling them that if they're a good worker, then they can have the opportunity to buy that bike. But that's episode four of season one. Anyway, while being in charge of agrarian reform, one of the things that he did was establish a work culture which later led to La Escuela del Campo, the school of the country, which all Cubans and Cuban-Americans know to be a program where school-aged children were sent to the countryside to do hard manual labor in the sun. Again, with poor food, poor conditions, oftentimes no running water and no actual supervision, to pick crops for the state. Basically sending children to go do forced labor and everyone had to go. And if you were a good student, well, you had to go even longer. Fun fact, my mom was a good student. So from age 11 to age 18, she stopped living with her parents and was taken to una escuela del campo where she was boarded all year and picked tobacco from like 6 a.m. to who knows when, and then went to school and was judged on how much tobacco she was able to pick. So uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Che Guevara. Because that's the best thing to do with smart kids, right? Yeah. Super. <laughs> As Minister of Industries, Che's economic roadmap for Cuba involved highly centralizing, eliminating the concept of markets, and relying on moral incentives, completely disregarding workers' agency and economic participation. This is in stark contrast with Marxist-Leninist thought and very in line with Stalinism. El Che had admiration for Stalinism and wanted to use Stalinist principles to restructure Cuba. 
And you can see that in his Stalinist gulags, in his militancy, and more. El Che admired the political model of the USSR, which is a very repressive, all-encompassing, one-party state owning and controlling the economy. And this means without unions or particular civil liberties. It's so, so important to distinguish between the version of communism that ended up being enforced by the guerrilla leaders that took charge of Cuba. And it wasn't that close to Marxism. It was so close to Stalinism. El Che actually also directly admired Joseph Stalin as a figure. This dude wrote his Aunt Beatrice and would sign his name Stalin too, believing oh that he God. was like the next Stalin. He even visited the USSR and he put flowers in Stalin's tomb. And this was in 1960, which was after everyone knew about Stalin's crimes. So in the history of the love affair of Stalin and Che, in later years, like in 1965, he started to distance himself from the USSR, but it doesn't seem related to the atrocities committed. He believed the USSR had become too privatized, so basically for more economic reasons. And so all in all, his admiration of Joseph Stalin definitely helps to paint a picture of what this man's values were and what he tried to impose on other people. And going back to this this whole like militant guerrilla style approach to the revolution, it kind of starts to point to this new ism, this Guevaraism, which is more of a theory of the guerrilla elite, right? The people who are willing to, you know, ride or die for the revolution and the causes that have been laid out. But the problem with that is that guerrilla warfare is a strategy. It's not a revolution. And so when it comes time to actually start to restructure after the so-called fight, you really don't have a lot to draw from. And this is a big reason why so many of his programs actually failed, I would say. And this is why it's difficult to think of him as a successful key architect of restructuring the Cuban state and economy, which we all know how that turned out. So (laughs) (laughs) I would go as far as saying that this idea of and I'm doing air quotes, revolution being the most important thing extending past the time of the actual revolution occurring is a big part of the reason Cuba is the way it is now. And by that, I mean terrible. Cubans raised in Cuba were taught to be like Che. And so part of revolutionary upbringing in Cuba is to actually truly admire Che as like this complete and kind of perfect human being and martyr of the revolution. In the middle of the revolutionary plaza, there's an image of El Che Guevara. And I'm aware that like my family grew up only knowing that side of El Che Guevara in Cuba. In Cuba, when you're un pionero, and so let's go back to episode four of season one, (laughs) where we talk about the various communist groups that you must belong to at stages of your life. And so the youngest stage is when you are just a kid and you are un pionero de la revolución or a pioneer of the revolution. Pionero por el comunismo. That is the motto. Pioneers of the revolution. Let's be like Che. And so El Che's legacy was used and is used in Cuban revolutionary politics to uphold militancy and and or to uphold utter commitment 
to the revolution. Pioneros por el comunismo seremos como el Che. And these little kids don't actually know anything about what the revolution truly means. I mean, they're words that they get taught in school, but to embody this and have to profess their intention to be just like Che in their own lifetimes, I mean, that's a little ridiculous. I think that if we bring it back to the concept of patria o muerte, which means homeland or death, this is the kind of decision that you have to make in times of war, to choose your homeland or die. And those stakes are incredibly high. Does the concept of homeland or death fit into restructuring and building a Cuba that's better for its people? I think that Che Guevara in his guerrilla politics was really good at overthrowing a dictator because he did that by violent means and a coup d'etat. But then he was also really, really good at admiring a dictator, a.k.a. Stalin, and trying to enforce policies and create structures that would pave the way for another dictatorship. Fidel Castro. He went around internationally trying to organize, radicalize, and form guerrilla militia in the name of violent revolution. And so there's a lot of people in Bolivia who I'm sure have very strong opinions about him. People in the Congo, people in Argentina, people in Guatemala. In some places, he's revered and regarded as a saint. And people look up to him. People look up to him as somebody who fought for workers and indigenous struggles. The fact that this man wore this beret and he's a radical figure, inspired the Black Panthers. It inspired Brown Beret wearers like Chicano activists. There's also people who see him just standing for anti-imperialism and they wear the t-shirt with his face on it because they're just like, this system sucks. And if he stands for that, then you can also be behind him. He was killed by what we may call imperialist forces. He was fighting a U.S.-backed force in Bolivia. Since that's exactly what he had been fighting against his whole life, this helped escalate him more so into martyrdom. The thing about El Che is that he quote unquote lived and then he definitely died for and by his beliefs. And that in and of itself is already something that could make you an icon, dying for the things you believe in. So he was assassinated in 1967 and it wasn't until 1968 that this image started being mass produced and appearing in the Paris student riots and all over Belfast, all over Berkeley, Vietnam, all over the world. You started seeing student protests with posters of Che Guevara popping up. So he never saw his image become so popular. That is what happens after you die. What's left is what you would, a version of what you stood for and kind of nothing else. The story of Che Guevara to me is a story of contradictions. One quote of his that's really, really popular is, at the risk of seeming ridiculous, let me say that the true revolutionary is guided by a great feeling of love. This is something that people who wear him on a t-shirt would probably identify with. But then he also said that a revolutionary is a cold-killing machine motivated by pure hate. Look, if you want to admire and print a different face that still stands for, like, egalitarian politics and anti-imperialism and workers' politics. Like, dude, go ahead, 
do it. Everyone should have like all sorts of different opinions about how to rule the world and all of that. But the thing is, this guy sucked. And so, you know, like, I don't know. (laughs) This is just what we think. You know, I live in Brooklyn. Half of Brooklyn probably owns a Che Guevara t-shirt. I don't hate any of them. I love you all. We just wanted to tell you some stuff. That's all. He has become this super popular image. Everybody knows who Che Guevara is at this point. There's movies made about him, his pictures on everything from little kid socks to t-shirts. And I don't really think that Ernesto Che Guevara would be this giant figure if it hadn't been for his image. I don't think he's that unique. I think everything that he contributed to history would have happened anyway. It just would have been by somebody else. Claro que sí, Carmen. Como Dios pintó a Perico. <laughs> yes. And with that, we're moving on to our cubanismo. Como Dios pintó a Perico. Like God painted the parakeet. Or like God painted some guy named Perico. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> it's a call and response when nothing else could have happened. Like when it's inevitable. Instead of saying, yeah, obviously, you can just say, como Dios pintó a Perico. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Like God painted a parakeet because I guess there was no other way that it could have happened. Thank you so much to all of our patrons, Jesse, Kellis, Yvette, Josh, Daniel, Jason, Karina, Suli, Sarah, Kristen, Amaury, Kaylee, Lauren, Catherine, Salia, Susan, Jose, Ryan, Andy, Derek, Dee. We love you all so much. Thank you for being wonderful supporters and seeing us into our second season. You know where to find us on social media. It's at ThinkEDCPod. And if you want to shoot us an email, it's ThinkEDCPod at gmail.com. See you next time and Think It Easy. Take it easy, folks. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.